Hello, everyone. This is Cristiana. This week, you're going to be having a full dose of our fantastic Tom Karnak, known in Costa Rica, by the way, as Mr. Tom Karnako. Now, you may have heard the dinner conversation he hosted with Satish Kumar, which we released just a few days ago. And now, in an effort to cultivate our groundedness in the face of the completely crazy world events we are witnessing, we are going to share with you an episode that Tom recorded on our sister podcast, The Way Out Is In. Some of you may remember that during the past year, we have been partnering with the co-hosts of that podcast, our good friends Joe Confino and Thai brother Fabhu, and with the entire Plum Village community to produce their podcast in a joint effort to bring more mindfulness into the world, specifically to bring more mindfulness into the world so that we might transcend our fear and anger and anguish and despair about the world we find ourselves in, in order to cultivate our inner ability to choose the future we want and which we know we must bring about. Some of you may also remember that earlier this year, I had the privilege of being a guest on The Way Out Is In, and we shared that episode here on Outrage and Optimism. During that interview with Joe Confino and Brother Fabhu, I shared some pretty intimate aspects of my personal story and also how I discovered the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh and how, for me, embodying those teachings and deeply embracing them through practice helped me not only to construct the ground that was necessary for the Paris Agreement, but also to overcome many personal challenges I was facing at the very same time. In fact, the teachings of mindfulness, interbeing, and engaged Buddhism, as taught by my teacher, Tignatan, who we call Thai, are actually still very much part of my life and work today. So after sharing my conversation on The Way Out Is In right here on Outrage and Optimism, we had such a positive outpouring from our audience and we thank you so much because the messages that we received from all of you were a clear sign that you enjoyed the podcast and you enjoyed hearing the incredible ripples that come out from the pebbles of wisdom of Plum Village. So this past summer, Tom spent a week at Plum Village with his daughter, Zoe. And during that week, he was interviewed by our friends, Joe Confino and Brother Fab Hu. And they aired that interview on their podcast, The Way Out Is In. But today, we would like to share that interview, as was recorded in Plum Village, on outrage and optimism. Now, a little warning here to our listeners, because longtime listeners will know that I am always on a constant effort to keep things succinct on this podcast and timely 
and reduced to like the really bare bones of the discussion. But, oh, oh, I should say Tom and Paul don't necessarily agree with me on that one. But anyway, it is a constant conversation among the three of us. However, I should warn you that the monastics at Plum Village have a very different view of time, a very different experience of time. And so today you will be treated and you will enjoy a longer style episode. So just a heads up in case you thought this was going to be a quick interview as we usually have. However, this longish interview is absolutely powerful. You will hear these three fantastic men discuss the power that deep spiritual grounding has to support change in the world, as well as how to bring presence and insight into our daily lives and the global challenges we face. You will hear how they discuss how to cultivate inner peace and how to take steps to make mindfulness a tool for both individual and collective awakening. So without further ado, in order to not make this even longer unnecessarily, here is another episode of The Way Out Is In, brought to you through Outrage and Optimism. Thanks for listening. Dear friends, welcome back to this latest episode of the podcast series, The Way Out Is In. I'm Joe Confrino, working at the intersection of personal transformation and systems evolution. And I am Brother Fab Hu, a Zen Buddhist monk in the tradition of Plum Village under the guidance of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. And Brother, we have a very good friend today, Tom Karnak. And Tom is the co-founder of Global Optimism, the presenter of the very well-known podcast series Outrage and Optimism, and also the chief political strategist working with Christiana Figueres to bring about the successful conclusion of the Paris Climate Agreement. The way out is in. Hello, dear friends. I'm Joe Confino. And I am Brother Fab Hu. And as I mentioned, we have today our friend, Tom Connack. Tom, welcome. Thank you. It is absolutely delightful to be here. I'm thrilled to be seeing the inside of the machine. It's not really a machine, is it? It's the organic creature that is the way out is in podcast. I'm delighted to be with both of you. Yeah. So you're very welcome. So, Tom, today we're going to be talking about the power of spiritual of a spiritual grounding in supporting change in the world and so i wanted to kick off by first of all getting a sense of um your spiritual tradition because many people may not know that you were a buddhist monk early in your life so tell us a little bit about that first wonderful well um very happy to so first of all Thanks again for having me. We'll get more into this, but it has been wonderful to be here for the first time ever in Plum Village these last few days. We're sitting, as you always do, in Tai's hut. I'm watching 
my 11-year-old daughter swinging in Ty's hammock just outside the window. So this is a wonderful moment for me, and thank you for having me. So yes, I have this background in my life of having been a monk, and it feels like a long time ago now, but it still shapes my worldview and really a deep part of my sense of identity and who I am. So I grew up, as many people did, not really having a sense of the deeper elements of life. We traveled around the world. We lived in lots of countries. My father looks for oil and gas. So many of my earliest experiences were looking for oil and gas in places like Colombia and the Middle East. But then towards the end of my teenage years, I began to have this sense that I didn't have any insight into the sequence of my thoughts. And it really disturbed me. It made me question my sense of identity and who I was and where I began in this phenomenon that was my mind left off, which I didn't seem to have any control over or connection to. So that led me in the first instance to the teaching of Esen Goenka, the Vipassana meditation teacher. And I started doing 10-day silent retreats. And the first one of which I did in Northern Ireland in a sort of old scout's hut when I was like 19 years old. And I remember having an experience, the first three days of those retreats, you just focus on your breath and you get as close as you can to the breath. And of course, most of the time, my mind was somewhere else and shouting and I'm unable to sit still. But I had a couple of experiences of feeling like I was in the best place that I could be in the world. And this was the work that I wanted to do. And I realized that wasn't an old scout site in Northern Ireland. That was somewhere in me where I could begin. So I went back into the world and carried on doing these 10-day retreats, which I found deeply satisfying. And then when I completed my degree, I went to Rangoon in Burma, in Myanmar, with no particular idea as to why, but still with this nagging sense that if I was going to be of any use in the world, I first had to understand myself to a greater degree. And as can happen in life with the serendipity of actions, Goenka himself was there in Rangoon. And I developed a connection and a relationship with him. So we spent a few months living in Rangoon where I would talk with him and get to know him. And this was one of the deepest periods of mindfulness training and cultivation that I've ever experienced. And in the end, he traveled around the country and I went with him. And at the close, we were at a monastery in Sagaing in the north of the country near to Mandalay. And he was on his way back to India. And I realized that our time together was coming to an end. He left and I stayed. And I stayed in that monastery for about six months. It was not very, the teachings were not that available to me because not many people could speak English. So I just sat in meditation and observed my breath and observed my sensations and allowed that process to deepen with those months of quiet. But in the end, it was a sort of lonely experience and I needed a sangha and others around me. So I ended up transferring to one of Achan Cha's monasteries in the northeast of Thailand, Wat Pananachat, which is near to Wat Nong Papong, where Achan Cha lived. And I spent the next two years there, living in a forest kuti, meditating, listening to Dharma talks. And I, I, again, I mean, many people may have done meditation retreats that are listening to your podcast. Of course they have. And the first period in which you engage in something like that is, is kind of awful because your mind rebels at the absence of 
sensory input, whether it's a taste or a smell or a feeling. And when all of that goes away, your mind kind of rebels against it. But then over time, that eases. And I'm saying this to people who know this very well. Um, that eases and you can suddenly look around and see where you are on this planet. And that I, some of the most profound insights or some of the most profound experiences of just being alive come from those very quiet days, sitting in my cootie, staring into the forest. So that was my life. Um, and of course, issues come up and, sometimes, and they pass through. And in the end, I realized that the life of a monk was very satisfying, but it wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I felt even then, this is the late 90s, early 2000s, that the climate crisis was a rapidly unfolding emergency. And I felt I wanted to leave and become more directly involved in trying to help. So I disrobed in 2002, went back to the UK and tried to carry on my practice. And I'm sure we'll pick this up in the story, but my sort of naive thoughts or the thoughts I had then that I would leave and manifest the practice in the world, of course, the reality of that didn't happen in quite the way I thought. The world's a complicated, distracting and noisy place, which is why coming here now is reminding me so much of those years. Yeah, so Tom, so you haven't been back in a monastery for 20 years. Give us a sense of what has it been like to come back? What has it um, reignited for you? Hmm. Well, what's been interesting over the last years of my life is that because I had this very intense experience as a young adult of mindfulness cultivation, that then going back into the world with an intentionality to bring it with me and not really being successful in that because of the noise of the world, my relationship with that has become a memory of, of concentrated mindfulness and attention and living in the present moment. And now that I'm here, I'm aware, although I probably couldn't put this into words at the time, that it, a sort of melancholy had settled on me and a sense that I'd allowed myself to go back to sleep over those years. And coming here, what's been interesting, the, the sense of the place and what it invites you to do, the spirit of the people that I've met, has meant that that's just broken open for me again. And I've done things in the last, I've been here two days, I've done things in the last two days I haven't done for 20 years, like just sit on a log and watch the wind in the poplars for 15 minutes. And how deeply satisfying that present moment can be. I feel very grateful to find that again. And the, and the, the strange thing, of course, is it was always there. I was allowing myself to develop this sense of melancholy and regret, like it was this difficult thing that I'd achieved and forgotten. And then coming back here, it actually seems simple. And Brother Fapu, when, when you hear Tom say that, because Tai often talks about, he said it's, it's in some ways much easier to be a monk or a nun because you are constantly surrounded by this sort of atmosphere of mindfulness, of relaxation, of peace, of intentionality. And, uh, and that can be much easier than living in this very, very busy world complex world where we are constantly bombarded with things and leading very busy lives, trying to make change, having families, 
trying to pay the, do our taxes, do the shopping, all the stuff we have to do. Is that your sense that people often just lose track of mindfulness in all that busyness? I think our, our language, we would say everything needs conditions. And in a monastery such as Plum Village, the conditions are everywhere. Um, just like Tom has shared, it's not just in the meditation hall, but it's in even the energy. Mm. I I know whenever I, I go out on a tour to give teachings in South America, in Asia, or in North America, and whenever I come back to Plum Village, especially Upper Hamlet, because that is my home, I do feel like I, I enter into a realm mm. of presence mm. that it's in the trees, it's in the air, it's in even the buildings. And we see that the investment that has been done in Plum Village is that the practice becomes a living organism. So it's alive in in the space. And this is a very supportive condition for our spiritual practice. Mm. And this is why, for me, it's so important that we need monastics in the world where there, there are people who will devote their whole life to continue to invest this energy of mindfulness, concentration, insight, compassion, presence. So to remind everyone that we have this already in us. So our 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 understanding is everyone has awakened nature in them, Buddhahood in them. They do have the ability to deeply touch even enlightenment in their daily life, but they need the right conditions. They need the right environment to support them. It's easier on the level for monastics is because this becomes our livelihood. Mm. Um, but I just want to say that monastic life, especially in the Plum Village tradition, is not as simple as we may think um, where we are not engaging to the world. If anything, the tradition of Plum Village, which Tai has uh, founded, it is deeply rooted in action how we bring the teachings of the Buddha into daily life, mm. which is how can we make every moment of life a moment of practice? But we need training. This is the truth, is that we need training and we need supportive condition. And for us, a living community is a great support. But for us who don't have these conditions, we, we can still make our life to have um, moments of mindfulness. I think sometimes um, one of the trap that can manifest when you start to practice is that you, you fall in love with it so much and then you you have the feeling like this is the key to to uh, to happiness and you get over ambitious uh, with trying to be super mindful um, in the world. But then when our own seed of mindfulness has not yet been so cultivated, we have only been able to recognize the breath, but we haven't been able to recognize the breath when we're angry yet. Because normally in a retreat, 
we're not triggered like that because people who come to the retreat, um, their their energy is very different. Their aspiration is is clear that they want to cultivate inner peace for them. So we all support each other uh, when when we are in this retreat, and and that's where it creates your foundation. But what people forget is that the practice is a journey. And it's not a one-time thing. It's not like you come to one retreat and you can have a check as one of the things you've done in life and now you have spirituality. Actually, spirituality for us is the refuge within that needs to always be cultivated. And to come into the world, to have a spiritual practice is possible. I have met friends and people, and I'm sure the two of you uh, have also been able to select moments in daily life to make them a moment of practice. And don't underestimate those moments, even if they're just 10 minutes. But those 10 minutes of clarity, of peace, of stillness, will have an impact in our actions, which for us is everything. We want to be mindful of all of our action, our thoughts, our speech, our activities, because they they bear our signature. And so what we offer people in a a Plum Village retreat is to experience not just sitting meditation, but even to experience um, the interaction and to see in this interaction what is being um, triggered in me and how do I still find my stability in a conversation I may be having in the retreat or like in this in the summer retreat which uh, is happening right here right now we have so many children which is the opposite of a silent retreat but how do you practice when you're lining up to get food when there is a sign that says noble silence because when the kids are not here we do serve in silence and are you aware that you have irritation coming up is your anger manifesting? For me, that's when you practice. That's when you have to activate your spiritual practice. It's very easy to sit on a cushion um, and be peaceful because nobody's bothering you. But And we need those moments in order to cultivate and to build this ability to, to be present and to be one with oneself. But we have to take it to the next level, which is daily life. In Plum Village, we we do a lot of um, interactive work with one another. That's how we get to know each other. It's not through the sitting. It's actually through the service. We cook together. And, you know, the kitchen is the place where all habits come out. <laughs> how you were taught to chop something from your grandmother or your mother. And suddenly now you have a brother who's doing the total opposite what what comes up in you? Are you angry because they're not chopping the carrot the way you want them to chop? And for me, that is when you have to come back to yourself and just embrace and smile to the anger, the irritation that is in you and find the peace in the difference. Thank you, brother. So, Tom... Bearing that in mind, you know, you, you talked about this sort of melancholy of feeling that you'd lost something. 
What's it been like to refind it? So what, what has your experience been so far of being here? What has it brought up for you? Well, so thank you for that, brother, what you just said. That's wonderful. And I think what you pointed to there was about the necessary step that we all need to take, which is moving mindfulness away from being something that happens in isolation of the world to something that happens while we are in the world and that the world can become a tool for. And you gave a very beautiful Dharma talk two days ago where you talked about many things, but one of the things you talked about was how Tai responded to the loss of some of his bodily function after he had his stroke. And you told many stories that affected me, but one of them was about how um, when he lost control of one side of his body, right side, and then in the moments after that, he showed such love and compassion to his damaged body. And that really affected me because that is something that from the perspective of the world is one of the worst things that can happen to a human being that you experience some kind of catastrophic physical breakdown that leads to a loss of your bodily function. And for most people, that would create enormous mental anguish. And that that moment he was able to demonstrate you that that was then a deepening of his practice is remarkable. So I tell that story, um, Joe, because you asked what it's like to come back here. And what it has reminded me is that the practice is not something that's separate from life. So what I think the melancholy had been about had been about some assumptions that had been brought up in my life, that I'd had a period in which I had the conditions in which practice was possible. And through lots of choices, none of which I regret, I was now in a phase of life in which practice was no longer possible. But through the stories that Brother Fapu has told, as well as the experience of exactly as you said, waiting in the queue while the kids are shouting and chatting to my daughter Zoe and making sure that her time here was good and finding the moments of practice there has reminded me that this is not about an isolated period of your life in which you try to decondition your mind and then kind of come back out. When we're younger, we sort of think, if I look back at my younger self, I think I sort of thought, well, I'll go away to the monastery and sort myself out, then I'll come back into the world and everything will be all right. And what I think these days have really demonstrated for me and have really brought up, as I think what will be the theme of the next phase of my life, is around integration. So I feel like I've spent roughly half my adult life focusing primarily on presence and spiritual development, and the other half focusing on raising a family, the problems of the world, climate change. And I feel now like the interesting work is at the intersection of those two. I don't feel like we can really advance unless we're able to bring those two different elements together in ourselves, in our work, because we're not really doing it at the moment. I mean, we're sitting in Europe now where we have just suffered completely unprecedented extreme heat events. We're looking at a situation where the political scenario in the United States and the UK and the EU looks like it's breaking down. The systems and the institutions that we have relied upon to see us through this great crisis don't look like they're going to be capable of delivering what we want. 
So where's the edge that we need to dwell with in order to move forward? I believe it's the integration of how we're living our lives, how we're bringing presence and insight to our moment, to the moments of our life and the great challenges of our generation. So Tom, given, given that there's very few people actually who've had the chance to really experience a deep spiritual grounding. So we see like in the world of politics and the world of business, there's very, very little um, of that people are able to express. Even if people have a personal practice, they are not able in any shape or form to be able to express that in their work. So in other words, we, we, you know, we are trying to deal with problems through science, through pretty much using our mind and cleverness to get out of it. Yeah. And there's very little opportunity to express our deep wisdom, our deep knowing. So I'm just wondering what's, how big a gap that really is. You know, what impact when you've worked in this field for so many years, what impact does that have that this is not present? So that's a very good question. And I don't think we really know what that change would be if people were bringing a different degree of presence. But I think its absence is manifest everywhere. And I think that it's also getting worse. So the impact that we described earlier of a heating climate with increased extreme weather, of course, are having direct impacts on the individuals that they affect. But they're also really messing with our minds and who we are and what the future looks like and how we show up as a generation. And what I observe inside the climate movement is that there's this like breathless urgency which is appearing in people. And it's completely understandable, right? They're right to feel that. And if you look at the statistics of young people, more than 50% of people between the ages of 16 and 23 in OECD countries worry about climate change for multiple hours on a daily basis. That is a stunning statistic about the degree of anxiety that that's inducing in, in, in our kids. So at the moment, without the tools to really handle that reality, Everybody is concluding, because they don't know what else to do, that the solution is to do more of whatever they were doing in the past. So activists are getting more angry and corporations are getting more focused on green growth and politicians are getting more in the weed of policy or the nuance of that. And as a result of that, everyone's moving away from each other. And the camps are becoming more distant because people are deciding that the urgency means that they need to take the gloves off and really come go big on whatever they were doing before. So what we're describing here is that we're not going to get through this unless we can find a way to come together. And that coming together requires a degree of self-reflection, presence and awareness to identify what is working, what isn't working, without that sense of egoic attachment to something that I've been doing before, it's my solution, it's my thing, we're going to have to be a bit more grown up in letting go of some of those things to come together and find the solutions that collectively carry us forward. And there's no shame in that. And it's something that I try to practice and it's, and it's difficult. Right? I'm sure I don't have everything right myself. So the reason I'm so sure that in that practice lies some of the keys to us moving forward is because I sort of see where this is going if we don't do it. And if we were able to do it, 
that I'm interested in hearing from both of you. Yeah, so, Brother Papu, what's your sense of how a spiritual grounding, a sense of the collective rather than the individual, how, how can, for instance, Thai's teachings serve people in this time? I think, first of all, our practice is to face the suffering and call it by its true name. And I think what um, Tom was uh, referring to is if we don't change, a collapse is coming. And this is where all of the anxiety, fear, and um, uncertainty manifest from and is driving people to quite extremes. Um, we have those who are living in just panic and fear and then those who are living like, well, if we're going to die, let's just let's just um, indulge yourself and, 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 and not care about anything. But uh, the Buddhist teaching and the teachings of our teacher is telling us that we are so interrelated to the suffering that is happening, but it's because we are ignoring the suffering. That is why we're not able to change our views and to have a deeper understanding. And so the first... Um, practice that we all have to cultivate is just learning to accept and embrace the present moment and taking care of our self in the here and now is not as simple as it sounds there's a very deep profound um, depths of being in the present moment is when you are in the here and now. It's not about spiritual bypassing. It's not just like, I'm going to feel good. I'm going to feel my breath. I'm going to have this sense of well-being and then life continues. It's actually, if you're so present, you're so aware and you're so connected to everything, you have to change. You start to see yourself is so interrelated with everything. Your way of action has an impact in daily life, impact to your child, your loved ones, your family, your community, your nation, the whole world. And then suddenly you have wisdom. Mindfulness in the here and now will offer you wisdom, which can lead to action, which is then what can I do to be a part of the change? And I think a lot of us, even myself, sometimes I forget I am part of the change. Even though I, sometimes I may not see the reality that I want, I don't underestimate my own um, impact that I can offer. And this is where the individual becomes the collective and the collective is made of all of the individuals. What we need is a collective awakening. In our times, our teacher has said, one Buddha is not enough anymore for our times, for our suffering, for the situations um, that we're all facing. We need multitudes of bodhisattvas, of those who are selfless, those who know how to see the benefit of others as their own benefits, the well-being of the planet as their well-being, the well-being of those who are all the way in Africa, my well-being, even though I'm not affected right now. Because there is 
a deep sense of interbeing when we're in the present moment. It's like when you when you hear the news of what is happening, and you're really present. It's impossible not to suffer. If you don't suffer, it just means you're ignoring it and you're running away from reality. And so our our core practice is recognizing suffering, but recognizing it and being with it not to drown into the suffering, not to be a victim of the suffering, but to embrace, accept, and see what to do and what not to do. And this is meditation. This is how we will integrate the spiritual dimension into the daily life, is recognizing, embracing, and then see the change that need to happen and then be the change. A lot of the times um, we have the tendency to want others to do it and not us to do it. So the practice of mindfulness, it brings it back to oneself. It's like this bread in your hand is the body of the cosmos. You, a human being, is also the body of the cosmos. So how you be has a big impact on the world. And this is where the individual practice is also very important. We have to learn to listen. If we want to to see the indifference, we have to listen to one another. Because we don't want to listen and we don't know how to share compassionately and use a language instead of dividing, use a language to build bridges, build harmony, um, see the common purpose, but also still respect the different paths that we're taking. And sometimes we we become so um, one-pointed view and we think this is the only way and we're very dogmatic about it. And this is where a lot of the suffering and separation um, continues to, um, to happen and where we cannot uh, work together. So what, what we've experienced is this retreat for, um, for climate leaders. And the first three days, we told them, please trust us and just invest the time to be with you. You may even feel a little bit guilty about it that I have this space and time, but it is so crucial because the actions that we want to create is based on love, based on care and healing. But if we can't find that even inside of us, how can we offer it? How can we generate it? And that is why it's so important to come back to oneself. When we speak about coming back to oneself in Buddhism, it's not about taking care of the ego, but it is finding all of the beautiful conditions that we want to cultivate outside, inside of us. Then we will have, we will have the ingredients to offer to the world, to the workplace, to our families, to our loved ones. And I, I would say we got to start with the ones we're with, start with our family, listen to ourselves, listen to our child, listen to our loved ones and hear what do they need. And it's as simple as that. Once you start to see my brother, my sister, my child, they just need my presence. Change starts to happen. Healing starts to happen. 
And then from that experience, you have faith because it has worked in a scale, a small scale. And then from there, you can continue to develop and continue to invest in this practice. I've learned to listen deeply through my 20 years of being a monk. I'm, sh- I'm sure um, at the earlier stage, my capacity was very limited of how much suffering I can listen to without overreacting and without being so tense in my body. But now my, my, my maturity of presence as well as being opened has grown so much. And I, I can always take refuge in my breath, even though what is being shared is so painful. And instead of drowning and being overwhelmed by the sorrow, my breathing becomes my foundation. I'm still present with the suffering, but I can guide the suffering. And this this kind of work, um, this inner work, we believe is so necessary for everyone of today because what we are facing will bring up a lot of emotions and feelings and um, even sense of despair. And we all need a place of refuge and we need communities. I, I truly believe that um, community is the way forward. We cannot do it by ourselves. There's no Superman that can change the situation. We really need a collective, um, collective movement, a collective awakening, a collective practice. And just to add one element that you mentioned, brothers, the power of presence. Because actually, what you said is refuge. We all need a safe harbor in difficult times. And we say, well, who who do people trust? Because there's so much mistrust, so much misinformation, so much complexity that people are increasingly looking for individuals or communities where people can rest and be at peace and not have to question everything, but say, what is it to be in a safe place? And to be with a safe person is someone who has been able to look at their own suffering, someone who's been able to work at themselves to the point where they are able to have stability, where they're able to deeply listen, where they're able to give compassionate speech, where they're able to, as you say, listen to the cries for help without being overwhelmed by them. And and it's very interesting because, Tom, when we arrived here, so we are recording this episode in Ty's sitting still hut um, in Upper Hamlet, and we're sitting around his kitchen table. But before we started, um, we went into Ty's very modest, small living room stroke bedroom. And Ty has not been in that room for is it six years brother since uh, 2016 right yeah so six years so tom what was your experience of walking into that space because in a sense even though ty has not been here for six years there was Mm. a presence Mm. in that room and i'm just really interested in you what was it feeling Mm. like because it's not 
a presence is not just someone in their life, but actually presence is is the emanation, is the is what what keeps going, the ripples that continue after someone has passed. Mm. I mean, I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier, brother, about the way that the practice becomes infused in the place, in the trees, in in the landscape, and the role of monastics that you thought spoke about that I thought was so beautiful in our collective human family to play the role of demonstrating that it is possible to live this life in which you focus primarily on what you so beautifully just described, which is placing faith and confidence in presence and the qualities that it develops and finding connection. And walking through that door, the huge privilege to walk into Ty's room where he lived, it's immediately apparent. You can feel it in the atmosphere. And it's overwhelming, right? If you go somewhere like that, where you experience what presence has done to a location, particularly, I think, for the first time, for me coming here, remembering that. And, you know, my, my daughter was there and she falls silent and then looks at me, there's something about this place, even though she can't put her words to it. But to just come back to what you just said, brother, something struck me as you were speaking, which is that we have allowed ourselves in today's opinionated, noisy world to believe that a close and safe community is one that shares our views on something, that has the same intellectual thoughts about a particular thing. And that's true of, of us at writ large as a culture. And also as we're talking about the climate movement, it's safe if you're an activist. There's a lot of purity testing amongst these different subgroups of do you really think that the fossil fuel companies are evil or do you really think, and everybody does that to each other all the time, to work out the safety and the purity of a particular movement as to become close to that ideology. And we think of that as safe because it's constructed a wall around us that has excluded others. But what you just described as a coming home, a safety in presence, is a safety in how you live, in a manner of acceptance and a way of experiencing the present moment that is invitational to others, which to me feels obviously and evidently fundamentally different. And that was sort of an insight to me in where we came at the beginning, that these groups are moving away from each other at the moment. We're not going to get them all to agree on the content. You know, if we say they all have to agree on every little step and we negotiate the document and... it just won't work. It will end up either becoming partisan and fractional or everybody will become unhappy. The way, the only way in which we have a sense of collective purpose is unity of how we direct our attention towards the present moment, towards the world that we're living in, that we're all working to protect. But the busyness of that activity is preventing us from seeing. So, Tom, th- thank you for that. And, and you know, Fap, who mentioned this climate leaders retreat we had a few weeks ago, and that was exactly the purpose of the retreat. We had 30 leaders from across the spectrum, from oil and gas companies to youth activists. And the first, as Brother said, the first three and a half days, no, there was no agenda sent out. There was no one knew who else was coming. The first three and a half days were pure plum village practices, people coming back to themselves, people sort of deeply listening to each other. And then only at the end 
were people given the opportunity to share their perspectives. Because by that time, people had recognised that they needed to let go of this is my idea and this idea is better than any other idea. And what was so interesting was people were... Everyone who came here felt misunderstood. That people said, as soon as I open my mouth with what I'm doing, people have already got a view on it. People have already got a response to it. And actually what I think the biggest change people got from being here was just saying, actually, I'm just going to listen. And I'm going to be open because actually we all have a common purpose. And we don't all have to be doing the same thing or agreeing with each other because actually it's in the diversity of change that we are most likely to create the change we need. So, um, so we, we have really stro- a strong sort of experience of that here and that people went away recognising that actually there was another way of seeing the world. And I think we all get locked in a particular way of seeing the world and then we end up defending it, justifying it. Yeah. And we feel that's us. Yeah. And so this is, as we're talking here, the letting go of this individual need to be, to show up, this is me, this is my idea, this is the best idea. And to say, actually, we find the best answers in the collective. And, and Brother Pepe, we just did a, the last episode we recorded was on Right View, that everyone sort of thinks their idea is the best, but actually it's only by letting go of our views that we are open to new ideas, to new ways of seeing the world. Mm. And just one thought on that, because I think, and I sadly couldn't come to Climate Retreat for other reasons, but I've met enough people to know it was a truly transformative experience. So I think it was an amazing thing to offer to the world. The point that you just made there, Joe, I think is the critical thing that we need to now come back to because this isn't going to get any easier, right? The thing about climate change is it's possible to be too late and we almost are. And now what we're finding is that people are thinking and feeling, you know, now it's getting this bad. Now the gloves are off. Now I'm really going big on my previous views and thoughts about what is needed in the world. And now I'm going to really insist on them. And we should have a lot of compassion for that perspective because that's done out of love for the world and out of a realization of the difficult place we're in. But viewed out from the perspective of this conversation, the net effect of everybody doing that is not going to bring us together in the way that we need to. So, I mean, I love Ty's very famous saying of don't just do something, sit there. And there's some element of that in this, which is as the crisis accelerates away from us, we need to do something different. And that requires a lot of courage to not be so fixated, all of us with our views and opinions, to meet the present moment with as much presence as we can and find our collective way forward with compassion for each other. Because we know where it's leading otherwise. So Tom, with that in mind... Because it's very easy to talk about the world and harder sometimes to talk about our own transformation. So I know you and I have been talking quite a lot about integration and and you mentioned this at the beginning, that you have a very strong spiritual practice and tradition, we can maybe say. And you also are working in the very busy world trying to work with all sorts of groups, organisations, movements, projects trying to create this change we 
so badly need. And you talked about the fact that, in a sense, they've been separate. Yeah. And, and I think that's been very true for most people in the world. Mm. And it's, it's that old thing, isn't it? You, you leave yourself at the door when you go to work because it's not, it, you don't take yourself to work. Mm. And I think that's very much true in terms of a spiritual tradition, that it hasn't been welcomed in the corridors of power. It hasn't been yes. welcomed in the parliaments of the world. It hasn't been welcomed in the boardrooms. It hasn't been welcomed anywhere in a sense that that this enriches life. It creates better decisions. It allows more cohesion, more understanding. It allows better decisions to be made. So you said yourself that you are now recognising first half of your life very much about the spiritual tradition, second half about the busyness and the, the, the living in the world and the cognitive work that needs to be done. So how are you thinking about, or not thinking, feeling and thinking about how this integration can happen? Because, of course, what we want in the world, we have to do ourselves first. Mm, mm, mm. So I'm just wondering where you are at with that. And now that you're here and you're mm. re-energised to being able to sort of experience that, deep sense, that deep well mm. of wisdom, well-being, peace, understanding, quiet. How does how can you connect that to the work? Hmm. Well, first of all, I thought the deal of coming on this podcast was you were going to answer that for me. So I don't <laughs> like that you've asked me that question. So I, <laughs> I will give you a very short answer and then I would like to invite you to respond to that and, question. And then we will ask you again. <laughs> <laughs> this is our podcast. <laughs> Word the holes. I, yeah, I'm, when... I'm going to ask you if you're outraged or optimistic if you're not careful. <laughs> so I seriously would like to hear your answer in particular to that, Fapu. But the, the only response that I could give off the cuff is that it is so difficult not to reapproach that with the same kind of thinking that created the problem, right? Because it would be very easy to say, you know, I've spent 10 years following spiritual pursuits and 15 years working in the client movement. Now I want to integrate them. I need to go away and think up a plan and come up with an ideology and a view <laughs> that is one of integration, you know, and all we will have done is add to the number of ideologies and views out there. So that a part of that has to be about creating a an intentionality and a presence and a space from which something can emerge and that process can probably neither be hurried nor slowed down but can't be born unless it has space to breathe and and before we go to Fapu for the answer <laughs> while while, we, while we drown in the, the sea while he looks at us with compassion <laughs> I, I'm wondering, Tom, if you were, let's say, from tomorrow to turn up to all your meetings and all the work you do in your full self, you know, mm. showing up your full presence and to really just to just that would be there would be no separation between your spiritual nature and your work nature. Yeah. What, what's the fear of what would happen? So I don't actually have a fear of that. And I've got enough experience of people who do that to a deep and impressive degree to know that probably what would happen is relationships would improve, outcomes would become clearer, and the work would become more integral and more intentional. The problem is I don't seem to be capable of doing it because the world is complicated and I will leave here on Friday with an intentionality to do that. And I mean, never say never, but history suggests that 
do you know, and I'm sure many of your listeners have had this experience that two, three, four weeks later, you know, kids, bills, work, whatever else it might be, travel, it will be hard to maintain that same sense of presence that I ultimately know is the quality that allows all the other relationships to improve and move forward. So it's it's not a fear, it's more of a practical problem. Okay, so Brother Vapu, <laughs> let's come to you now for the, for the answer. For the answer. <laughs> so, so what I hear Tom saying yes. is that even if you have a deep knowing yes. that you trust, that is a bedrock of understanding, that is a deep truth by which it can guide so like a it's your path it's a guidance it's a path through life that in all the busyness and all the complexity it's just so hard to maintain that and it's so hard to show up fully because actually it could be exhausting because it's difficult because people are trying to cope and if everyone's trying to cope then where's the space in which we can stand back and create space so what's the answer the answer is <laughs> the practice. <laughs> I knew it. I knew that. some sort of yeah. response. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to dig deeper than that. No, we're going to go deep. We're going to go deep. But fundamentally, it is the practice. And the word practice, it means we have to do it every day. We have to f- find snippets here and there to cultivate a sense of oneness a sense of feeling let's talk about our times because i think during the buddhist time was very different their suffering their complexity is much um i would say simpler than ours we are now in a space where the energy is identifying which energy that makes us lose ourselves that's a practice we have to recognize which which activities brings out the habit energy that makes us not who we want to be. Recognizing our habit energy is mindfulness. Seeing how can we help transform these habits or how can we tune these habits to make it into a supportive activity. We in Plum Village, we always say that mindfulness is an art. It's an art of living. Our daily activities that we do can all become practice. Even for myself as a monk, I have to be very selective in where I want to invest my energy to maintain my presence, maintain my energy of mindfulness. The northern star that I want to reach is that every moment is mindfulness. But reality is I'm not there. And I have no shame in saying that because I'm very human. I have a lot of emotions and feelings that manifests during my interactions. But now the difference is I can recognize them and I can guide them through a practice. I'm going to present a few practices, but what we always have to understand is that each, each and every one of us have this ability to cultivate, but we have to find the one practice that really works for us and not to feel, oh, because I can't enjoy sitting meditation, I'm not a practitioner because meditation is more than sitting meditation. We have the practice of mindful breathing. 
and mindful breathing is at an art to bring the mind home to the body. Every morning when I wake up, and a lot of us novice, we are trained in this, is that waking up this morning, I see 24 brand new hours. And we have gathas in our tradition, poems that we would recite to remind us. Waking up this morning, I smile. 24 brand new hours are before me. I vow to look at all beings with the eyes of compassion. So already with that gatha right there, that poem, you set your intention of the day. And our teacher even recommends breathe in, you say one line. Breathe out, you say another. So it's not just a theory now. It's not a thought, but it becomes an aspiration. It becomes a living dream and, and, and a living insight that we're going to do. And the art is not to look for pro- perfection. A lot of us, we, we will be discouraged when we are not mindful. And we're like, oh my God, those are for the monks and the nuns or for those quote-unquote more spiritual, I'm not there yet. I'm going to wait until I'm 50, 60, 70 when I have less to do. And that is a wrong perception. Is actually, if you can't do it now, don't think in 50, 60 years you're going to be able to do it. So that is one example, mindful breathing finding reminders in daily life. You know, every time I brush my teeth, is a practice. Tai says you have two minutes to brush your teeth. Are you grateful that you have teeth to brush? Are you grateful that these teeth allows you to enjoy the most delicious food that, that nourishes you? And so even the action of brushing your teeth can become a refuge. Personally, walking meditation, walking the steps have really become my anchor. Before meetings, um, before Dharma talks in front of 700 people or even 30 people, I know that there is um, moments where I'm gonna feel not stable. And so I want to invest in a few steps to find my center. And even if it's just 20 steps, that's five minutes. And that moment becomes my meditation where I learn to identify my anxiety, my fear, and just guiding the fear and anxiety to the here and now. And then trusting oneself. I know I have something to offer. And then channel the solidity in you. And when you enter into the room, enter into the space to offer your sharing, with you come in with this, with this energy, you will be present. Your interactions will be different. Your sharing will become one with you, not just your fear. I, I shared this to Joe and I think I shared this to um, the 700 friends who are here. I made tea for Thai in my first attempt um, 
to become his attendant. And I was very eager to make him the best cup of tea. And as I <laughs> poured the hot water into the, the new tea leaves, I wanted to pour a cup right away to invite to Tai. And Tai said, stop, let the tea sit. Because everything that does sitting meditation is better. And he said, allow the tea to sit for at least two minutes so that the, the fragrance, the essence of the tea to manifest, to be there, is true essence. And Tai said, everything that has time, takes time, it will offer its best. That, for me, is my goal. And we think that meditation needs to be 10 hours looking at the wall or five hours, two hours, but just three minutes of deep sitting and being one with yourself, allowing yourself to be there, trusting yourself and offer the best you can in that moment. And that's the best you can in the here and now, but tomorrow you can do better because that experience will be invested so your cultivation will grow. And so know that each moment of daily life can be an art. I, I have um, the tendency to love neatness and sometimes that can be an obstacle because you become too rigid in your way of life. But I have made folding clothes a practice. I love to fold the clothes to make the robes nice and straight in the corners, matching. And instead of um, making this into like a perfectionist activity, but I make this as a practice. I enjoy it. And when I do it, I am really one with the clothes. And seeing that the clothes is not just a thing. The clothes supports me. When I wear this robe, I am reminded what it represents. So even folding the clothes can be a meditation. What, how does it support you in your daily life? And it will have impact on your view when you see, wow, I have clothes to wear. I, that's more than enough. I'm nourishing my moderation which is an aspiration. And every time that I have the desire to shop to buy more, I just am reminded I have more than enough. And so your daily activities becomes insights. For us, the meditation hall is a wonderful condition, but the cup of tea in front of you is a condition and how you turn the moment of drinking your cup of tea is it spiritual or not? That is up to you. Even in presence, when we are together, we can all be looking at our phones, which a, a large percentage of the world now is so attached to, or we can really be there and just sit and enjoy the breeze without feeling we need to cover up this emptiness of space. So what... I am recognizing is this culture of fast pace of our society. It is because we're always trying to run away from the suffering. And so we want to cover it up with 
um, conversations, with informations, with news, or with even stories that we know um, doesn't support anything, but we're going to retell it again and again and again. But here, what we if we if we are one with nature, you see, if the tree is just a tree, it's offering the best. It doesn't need to be a flower because the tree is offering the best it can to support the environment, support itself as well as support us. And us, if we can be the best version of ourselves, which has the the seeds of compassion, of love, of presence, of healing, even even our pains, our suffering can be ingredients of transformation. Instead of pushing that away and running away from that and looking for an outer form, what we really truly want to offer is love because that's what made us who we are today. And if we can truly touch the true nature of love, our way of life will change. Our interactions will change. Our capacity of wanting to understand more will grow. And you will have the capacity to listen even more deeply. That's why for us, suffering is a noble truth. We're not trying to run away from suffering, but we're trying to know how to suffer, to suffer less, so that happiness and well-being can be more alive, more present for everyone, and not just a selective group. So I'm sorry to say, but it comes back down to the practice of the, the, the day-to-day practice. And there's not a magic pill that I can offer to everyone. I wish I can, but... The magic is already there. Your breath is there. Your steps are there. Your deep wish of a compassionate society is there. And coming to a retreat is important though. We have to cultivate these these practices so that we can have confidence in ourselves to bring it home. And just like going to the gym, or eating a healthy diet. It's not a one-time thing. We have to continue to invest into it. So we also have spiritual muscles that we need to nourish in us. But for me, meditation is also joy. There is a joy in meditation. And when we can taste the joy of meditation, it will be easier to bring into daily life. And this is what I really appreciate in the teachings of Thayin. This is what drawn me. You know, I came here as a child uh, at, when I was nine years old. It was my first retreat. I didn't understand anything that Thay was teaching, although I felt his presence, his presence. But what I took away was, wow, there are people who are very kind. There is a community that is investing into the well-being of many. And the happiness that I was able to taste was so profound is what I carried away. And that's why I wanted to become a monk because 
I wanted to be a part of this. I wanted to be a part of this happiness that I was able to taste. I was able to to feel in me and make it alive. And what I see is that um, we still have a duality that spirituality is something separate than daily life. But for us, Buddhism, Thai has said, is a way of life. And if we can start to see that there are activities in our daily life that can be a practice, start from there and slowly develop more and more into your your daily activities. So, brother, that that's so beautifully put. And um, what it makes me realise is sort of, you know, I came to live next door to Plum Village two years ago. And I haven't really read anything or I haven't really done anything, but I've just been here. And, I, and I've been soaking it up because it's, it's as you say, it's in, we, we live in a society which seems to value sophistication in the Western society. And what you've described so beautifully is that actually the answers are not about waiting to have this great spiritual epiphany where the sort of sky opens and and the the gods look down on us and we suddenly are given the sort of answer but it's actually it's actually in the most simple things and uh, the sacredness of the most simple things can be the most profound so so it's beautiful just to be reminded of that so thank you and Tom, how does that sit with you? I mean, what, what's, what is, by listening to that, because you described, you know, the, the, the first thing you described was being able to come here and to sit on a log and listen to the breeze go through the poplars. It's the most simple thing, mm. but, it, but it, the way you described it, it sounded profound. It was mm. like, oh my gosh. So it would be lovely. What, how does that sit with you what let's mm. sit with you let's sit for two minutes <laughs> let it mature but um how does that sit with you you know what what comes to your mind when you hear this first of all thank you that was wonderful mm. and you connected so many things for me in what you said and i think you did express an integration that i've sort of been aware of but i haven't really put words to that hopefully can be helpful for listeners as well because it's very easy, as you said, to think of, our mind is used to thinking of tasks as things to do. And we keep adding things to the list. And the trouble with spiritual practice and insight is if we add it to that list, then it actually just becomes another thing to do that ends up achieving the opposite of what we intended to do. But what you just described so skillfully is the manner in which mindfulness integrated into daily tasks makes those tasks more enjoyable and more successful all of us might be struggling with a relationship we might have young children for example and the relentlessness of that but if the five steps before we go into the room with the child are very mindful steps then we go through that door as a different person compared to if we hadn't taken those steps or if we're going into a meeting that we might have anxiety about or giving a talk to talk to people. 
So that's incredibly practical. And that contains within the practice, the reward of the practice in a practical way. So therefore, it creates an intrinsic motivation to do it that is different from adding another thing to do. That is a real level of integration that sounds simple when expressed like that, but actually is a profound insight because of the use of it in our daily lives. And as we develop that, then that can keep us going in a different direction. So you, you said many things, but that one I think will really make a difference to my day-to-day life as I go home. And it's interesting, Tom, because um, because when I asked you a question, I said, do you fear showing up fully? And you said, no, it, it's a practical thing for me. But, yeah. I, but I think a lot of people do fear showing up fully at work. I, I remember <laughs> I was working in New York um, for the Half Post, but it was then owned by Verizon Media. And, and they produced this um, sort of internal comms campaign. And, and one of them is, you know, show up fully at work. And, and everyone had laughed, said, if I showed up fully at work, I'd be fired. Right. <laughs> you know, the, the last thing they really want is me to show up fully at work. They want me to show up as a, as a cog in the machine and do what I'm told and not question and not answer things. So, but I think what, what, so I think people do feel fearful of showing up. Hmm. But I think what I love about what you said, brother, is there's no fear in this showing up. Yeah. I, I think there's a sense of if I show up as uh, with my spiritual grounding, I have to use different language. Yeah. I would have to say, you know, how are you feeling today and, and, and what's going on in your consciousness? You know, but what you're saying is actually you don't have to say anything yeah. at all. Yeah. There yeah. doesn't have to be a single word spoken. It's, and this is presence, isn't it? And yes. I think this is, this is almost the core of what we're talking about, isn't yes. it? It's saying actually... If I show up fully in myself, I don't have to say anything about how I'm showing up. Don't say, hi, everyone, I'm showing up fully in myself. And I took four steps and I feel more at peace because of that. And I thought about how wonderful it is to have teeth and, and uh, how wonderful it is to have hair and two legs. And, you know, that doesn't have to be spoken But if we recognize that, because actually there's a lot of gratitude in that, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of deep appreciation, there's a, and there's love, as you say, and love is, is, we're showing up differently. And that doesn't have to be spoken, but people do feel it, just like Tom, when you walked into. Yeah. We didn't actually need to say anything, because we all felt it. Yes. And, And of course, we sometimes feel the need to say something, but, but it was there. Yeah. And if it's there, we know it. And what, it resonates with us, is that place in us. Yeah. Yeah, showing up, I agree with you. It doesn't look different in a practical way. You know, we don't suddenly all start wearing purple or something like that, right? There's no visible manifestation of that necessarily. can be quite a sort of, I mean, for some people, depending on, there's a lot of anxiety in the world, right? That can just, it could just be seen as a coping mechanism apart from anything else, just to remain in your body, in your breath, in your feet as you're walking. And then you arrive with spaciousness. But it's amazing how different it feels when someone walks into a room like that. You can immediately tell yeah. if someone walks in full of whatever they were carrying. And tell you who can tell instantly is kids. Mm-hmm. If you walk in like that, they immediately respond to you differently. It's a remarkable barometer. And it's difficult to remember to do it because of some imagined future benefit. But actually, it's quite easy to remember to do it because you know that your kids will 
respond to you differently. You won't have that nightmare of them screaming at you in some way because you're showing up with more spaciousness. There's an immediate benefit to everybody by doing it. So that's the that's the profoundity and the simplicity of what you said that I think hopefully is very useful for me, hopefully will be useful for people. So, you know, if things are so simple, why do we find it so difficult? So, so to wake up in the morning, you know, sometimes I'm grumpy. I very rarely, when I brush my teeth, I'm, my mind's going somewhere else. You know, so, so I have got in many ways developed an appreciation and a deeper compassion and a love, but actually it keeps on evading me. Mm. My mind keeps on, I, it's, it, it's so hard to, you know, sometimes the most simple and profound things are also the most difficult things to grasp because you think, well, if it's so simple, we should all be doing it. And then the world would suddenly change, but most of us aren't doing it. And even those, when we're reminded, we often forget. So Tom and then Fapu, what do you think it is makes it so difficult, even when it's so simple? Because if, if you said, well, you have to sit for three hours a day for 20 years and then you'll get the fruits of that practice, you know, say, well, yeah, okay, got it. But <laughs> actually, the Thais teachers say, you can do it now. You can do it in the next five minutes. You can change that. So, Tom, what, what, what's your sense of why it's difficult? And then we'll ask Fatpu for the real for the answer. The actual answer, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll just humiliate ourselves first and then we'll fl- and then flap around for and a bit. Then and showcase how, how incredibly wonderful I appreciate he is. that. Thank you, Joseph. <laughs> You're the foil. So for are you sure brilliant. you wouldn't like me to go after Fabio? <laughs> um, I mean, I think that, obviously, I don't know, but I think that to a certain degree, the answer is in your question. It's sort of difficult because it's simple. That can't really just be that. And when you when you have and you know I'm a baby in this really, but when you have the experiences of the of the deep satisfaction of presence, and then you re- you realise that of course that goes further, but that that really is at the end of the day how life can and should be lived, and it contains such satisfaction that the other things we get chasing after that always contain the seed of suffering look very different to you and then you cast your mind to the long sweep of history and the wars and the suffering and the fighting and the arguing over different things it just looks mad that we've done all of that and I don't know who said that it may even have been John Lennon I think that most of the problems in the world are caused by the fact that we can't sit quietly in rooms and be comfortable with that fact and there's a lot to that actually but let's go to the answer The mind is the base of how we create our world. And this is not the ultimate uh, answer, but this is the understanding that I have right now. Like what Tom has shared is we, we do live in a culture where we like to make things more sophisticated than it should be. And there is an ego to that. If it sounds too simple, nobody wants to do it. Because that can't be the answer to world peace. That can't be the answer to solving the climate situation. But the reality is, this is where the quote of Tai comes in. Don't just do something, sit there. But sitting there, it doesn't mean do nothing. Sitting there is to look deeply at 
the causes of our suffering. And in the simplicity, we get to untangle the the sophistication of our situation. But because we're not able to sit still, we continue to add layers of complexity on it. And this is why the first wing of meditation is just learning to pause, learning to slow down. And when we look at the animals, they have this insight. We have this insight. The animals, when it is wounded, it knows how to stop, heal, and rest. But we, we have this idea that by sitting still and doing nothing, we're not contributing anything. And we think that by doing is contribution. Sometimes it is correct. Doing is contribution. But sometimes our action is based not on the insight of healing and and transformation, but we are doing just to cover up something. And this has become a habit and a culture. And this is where sometimes it is so difficult to practice meditation because it makes you so simple. It asks you to just be still and to identify the knots in you. And to now have the time to untie the knots. And we think that, oh, that's, that's, that's too selfish. That's, that's not offering anything to the world because that's just me. But when we have the insight of interbeing, which is we are also a part of the world. So if you can be someone who is solid, someone who is present, someone who has peace and the ability to listen without judging, that contribution is so valuable. That becomes a virtue. So for us, simplicity is also a virtue because simplicity allows for so many things to manifest. But when we're all so busy and sophisticated, actually no one is listening to each other. We're just showing off our sophisticated mind, our, our complex that we have created, which we believe to lead to the answer and it becomes a a battle of ego. And so the ego, the mind that we have um, is what creates the complexity. And what is the ego feeding off? It is the feeling of being wanted to be seen, wanting to be heard. And where does that base come from? Wanting to be loved wanting to be a contribution. And sometimes we don't have that chance to feel needed, to feel loved, to feel like we are a part of something. That is why we make things more sophisticated, more loud to be seen, to be heard. And so if we come to the Buddhist teaching, Three Doors of Liberation, emptiness, you are everything. And everything is you. You cannot be by yourself. You are signless because every action that you offer has your signature. So you are more than just you. Your action is also you. You are already what you want to become. Every action you have is an impact. 
Stop running after an image that is not you. Come back to yourself and embrace the you. And you know when you do that, how simple that is. You heal your whole ancestral lineage, and this tendency to make things complicated is also a mechanism of running, and that comes from our ancestors, from their suffering, and from the suffering of society, because we're so interrelated that when we are a part of the world, we are influenced by all of these different. Past experience, as well as present fear, and so by just coming home to oneself, that is the journey of healing already. It's simple like that, and people feel like I have to meditate even longer, but meditate in the moment. That is the process of deeper transformation. Our teacher has never um, told us that. That an enlightenment comes out of nowhere; it comes from the daily practice, the daily insight of simple actions. You know, his name Nyukhan is means one action. One actions will lead to multitudes of action, but in one action that you do it with your full presence, your the best capacity that you can in this moment, it is the best offering. And every action that we are offering, which is multitude of action, twenty-four hours a day of action, if we can just be mindful of ten actions a day, that has an impact already. And the third one is um, aimlessness. This is quite an interesting one of our times. Aimless here, it doesn't mean that we don't have a goal, but we. The goal is not the happiness. This is what is teaching us. As a monk, I have an aspiration. That is my my fuel that allows me to continue to offer retreats, to invest myself in the trainings, and deepen my practice, deepen my understanding. But I don't wait until I'm enlightened to be happy. That is a wrong view. That's a view that. Is is um, makes us um, carried away from the present moment, but signlessness is teaching us that we should learn to enjoy the process, the goal that we are walking towards. Don't let that become a wasted moment. Enjoy the team building that needs to be done. For me, my greatest community building is when we work together. Is when we're all together preparing for a retreat, when we're cooking for together. We come to these community work days where everybody's hands on deck. We're all cleaning the toilets. I don't see that as not a deep moment. That moment is a moment of togetherness, and I don't wait until the end of the retreat to say this is happiness because already we are. Present, we are mindful. The offering has already been there, and this is in the climate retreat. Um, Sister True Dedication shared this, and it has really stuck with me. She shared that what we are building is a culture of continuous healing and transformation and care, but it's not a one-time action. It's not a one-time thing, and the simplicity of it is that. Every action that we do now has an impact, 
And if we just start to untangle our own mind, it's actually our fear might be very simple. The fear of just existence. That is a fear of death. We talked about this. And if we can just recognize that that is the fear that we have, it becomes more simple, less sophisticated than we thought. We get to start to remove the the, the onion, the peels of the onion that that we feel so overwhelmed with. And so this is this is part of meditation, just to have time to identify our own fears and seeing that, wow, that doesn't even have to do with us. That's actually a fear of my parents. And I'm very different. Okay, one thing less, less worried about. And so in the simplicity, it also embraces the complexity. But the complexity, it drives us um, more further away than the foundation where we need to arrive at, which is stillness. And this is um, our fear because we sometimes are just afraid to see our own fear. Thank you, brother. Be- beautifully spoken. And um, Tom, I'm just wondering, sort of, you know, you'll be, next couple of days, you'll be going home. <laughs> and, uh, in, in, you know, in putting fear. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and as you said earlier, you know, one of the challenges is, isn't it, that when we take time out and we refresh ourselves and we come back to ourselves and we, 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 can quite quickly, when we already have a certain awareness, come recognize the power of that, the importance of that, recognize the freedom in it, recognize how it can sort of enhance our lives, how it can refresh us. Um, And I'm just wondering, sort of listening to this conversation, being here in a monastery for the first time in 20 years, as well as recognizing, as you've spoken about, the urgency and scale of the issues we're facing. Just wondering what 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 now at the as we come to the end of this sort of recording, what what is resonating in you about um, how you may be able to take this with you in a way that is meaningful and 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 can be maintained in some form, as opposed to this by next uh, Tuesday that you sort of you're fully in the business and 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 it's and you're trapped again. Yeah. So I think. The first thing that I feel will be important for me in returning to my life is actually that acceptance that normal life is different and that I can't expect perfection from myself. And that in itself creates a relaxation, you know. The best that we can do is we can bring more presence and more intentionality and move in a direction that has that infused in it and that we're able to let go of the things that distract us, the ideas that trap us, 
but that that's going to be a process. I think that I'm leaving with some practical tools, actually. A sense of, and I, I feel like, and actually I didn't really identify this until this conversation, but what one of the things you just described about the coming back to the breath, coming back to the steps, just at moments in daily life, as you were talking, I was realizing that I sort of do that intrinsically. And that's probably the leftover of my practice from years ago that tends to happen in moments of great stress, that I sort of take refuge in those places. And I think I've done that somewhat unconsciously. But actually now identifying those moments gives me an opportunity to expand them and make them a larger part and a more intentional part of my day-to-day -day life. I feel like there is a real importance in not losing touch with those who are on a similar journey to you. And I think that's one of the, if I have a regret of the years ago when I left the monastery, I think it would be that I just sort of moved away and, and fairly quickly lo left, lost touch with the people who'd been on that path with me. And I think in, respect, in retrospect now, that was probably a fairly significant part of why it became something I used to do rather than remained a present part of my life. But the other thing I would take away that I think will stay with me because it feels now like it's been very profound is these seemingly simple moments of real presence that I've had the opportunity to experience here the last few days. And I've shared some of them, but one more. I mean, in a moment of unbelievable generosity on your part, Fapu, you allowed the 700 of us here to take part in a ceremony of spreading Thai's ashes in New Hamlet yesterday. And that you allowed people who have probably didn't know him or may not have had a relationship to him to participate in something so intimate, first of all, really touched me. And then I, I queued up with as much mindfulness and presence as I could muster and took my handful of ashes. And I was walking around New Hamlet looking for a tree to place them on. And of course, as we all do, that was an interplay of presence in my body and my breath and my mind coming in. I was like, what am I going to do now? I don't want to choose the wrong tree. I don't want to make a mistake. And, you know, <laughs> this feels really important. I don't want to mess it up. And in the end, what I did was I just held it in my hand and looked at it and was completely absorbed in the way that the wind was catching the edges of this ash and watched it for maybe 20 minutes as it just disappeared into the wind. And that now feels like, it was sort of on one level profound and one level simple, mm. but it feels like it was a point of departure in my life to watch, first of all, on the basis of this incredible act of generosity on your part and the monastics here to participate in that. Somebody who is so identified with this sense of interbeing that when he died, he wanted to become a cloud. And to have the opportunity to stand there in my body, watching the wind take part of his remains up into the sky, feels like it was a point of real departure in my life. Mm. And so there are moments of transformation and I will take that with me with great gratitude. Thank wow. you, Tom. And it's, uh, it's very similar to the, it reminds me of the story when I interviewed Ty once and he said that he'd recently received a letter from someone in Saigon who wanted to build a stupa for him. Mm. And that he had written back saying, well, actually, I don't want a stupa, but if you are to build one, then I'd like you to put a sign outside saying, I am not in here. And he said, and if people don't get it, I'll ask them to put another sign out saying, I'm not out there either. 
And if they still don't get it, I'll ask them to put a third sign on saying, but you may feel me in your steps or in the breeze. Mm. So, Beautiful. yes, you felt Thai in the breeze mm. and you experienced Thai in the breeze. And so how beautiful that is. So, Tom, um, thank you for joining us today. And also, while we're here, to thank you for your generosity, because we're talking about generosity here. And, um, and it's in part because of you that this podcast series exists, because when I mentioned it to you that we wanted, that Fapu and I wanted to create a podcast, you said, well, I can help, because mm -hmm. our amazing producer, Clay, may have a bit of spare time. And he may be able to support this. And, and actually, that happened. Your, your thought turned into an action and actually created this podcast. Because actually, at that time, without Clay, I don't think this podcast would have existed. And even if it existed, it would have sounded so amateurish <laughs> that I'm not sure if anyone would want to listen. But he's so brilliant that he yeah. was able to immediately, the, from, the, from the first episode, it felt... Even I was impressed. I think, wow, fat poo, that sounds good. <laughs> so so just to thank you for that. And also to thank you for your friendship and um, and for the work you do. And I watch you in my life and feel, you know, thankfully we have people like you who are able to show up, who have that deep understanding, that compassion, that love, and who bring that to your work. And, and you know, that's what, Will create the change and and you are one aspect of that change and um i'm grudgingly having to appreciate fat poo again for Yay. for really knocking the ball out of the park <laughs> and making us look like complete idiots <laughs> in comparison and thank thanks it's a low bar with you the <laughs> <end>. <laughs> although he did it well <laughs> so uh dear listeners um we hope you have enjoyed this episode and have gained some inspiration or some practical tools from this discussion. Um, and Fapu, I'm wondering whether in now time-honoured tradition, yes. uh, you would like to offer us a short meditation. We've done a lot of talking, we've done a lot of feeling, but actually now we can let all that go Yes. and come back to this present moment. Yes, dear listeners, dear friends, wherever you may be, if you are going for a jog, going for a walk, working, or sitting on a bus, or at home cleaning your house, if you just allow yourself to be still, you can just stand with your two feet on the ground, or sit on a chair, on a couch, or even lay down, and just gently Come back to your breathing. Just identify, this is my in-breath. This is my out-breath. Breathing in, I feel the air coming inside, nourishing all of my cells in my body. Breathing out, allowing the breath to take care of my body, in, out. Breathing in, I'm in touch with Mother Earth as a living, breathing organism. Breathing out, 
I smile to the wonder of the earth. In earth, living and breathing with me. Out, I smile to the wonders of life. Breathing in, I'm in touch with the stability of the earth. Breathing out, I admire the perseverance of the earth. I just smile. Breathing in, I'm in touch with the creativity of the earth, all the wonders, the forests, the ocean, the mountains, the flowers. Breathing out, I admire the infinite wonders of sounds, color, vegetation, and life forms. In creativity of earth, out infinite wonders. Breathing in, I'm in touch with the non-discrimination of the earth. Breathing out. I admire the capacity of the earth to welcome back and bring to life again all forms of life. In non-discrimination of earth, out, welcoming back and bringing to life again and again. Breathing in, I see myself a child of the earth. Breathing out, I feel deep love for the earth. Child of the earth, I am. Deep love in me and all around me. Thank you, friends, for joining us. And we'll see you again next time. Yes. And uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, and then you can find many more. And including one, brother, on the three doors of liberation, emptiness, signlessness, and aimlessness. And um, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on other platforms that carry podcasts, and also on our own 
Plum Village app. And this podcast was brought to you by the generous donors of the Tickenhan Foundation. If you would like to support future episodes of the podcast and the work of the international Plum Village community, please visit www.tnhf.org donate. Thank you and see you next time. is in.